as 2023 begins with their backs against the wall, what will the violent, angry Christian nationalists do? They're not going away. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. The insurrection at the U.S. Capitol two years ago, January 6, 2021, was not a blip or an aberration. It was the logical outcome of years of white evangelical subcultures' preparation for war. I know that sounds a bit much, but we'll be talking about that. So says our guest today, Bradley Onishi, a religion scholar and former Christian nationalist himself. His new book is titled Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. So, as 2023 begins, while most Americans are starting to breathe a sigh of relief that the primary instigator of that violent attack on our democracy, Donald Trump, seems to be finally starting to lose his political power, the threat is by no means over. Catherine Stewart, author of The Power Worshippers, calls Onishi's book gripping and essential reading for anyone wants to understand the threat that this movement poses to American democracy. It ain't over. Our guest today is Bradley Onishi, a scholar of religion. His writing has been published in the New York Times, LA Review of Books, Religion and Politics, among other outlets. He holds degrees from Azusa, Pacific University, Oxford University, and L'Institut Catholique de Paris, and he received his Ph.D. from the University of California at Santa Barbara, a TEDx speaker and the author, editor, and translator of four previous books. Onishi teaches at the University of San Francisco and lives in the Bay Area. Thanks so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive. This is an important oh, subject. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. Well, it's it's one thing for people who have never been insiders to write about a topic that we're not a part of, but you yourself were a Christian nationalist. Tell us about that transition, how it came about, and I, I find it fascinating that in the 1990s, you had been a typical American kid listening to the likes of Pearl Jam and Nirvana. <laughs> how did you go from there to your experiences in the youth groups and prayer meetings of the 1990s? Tell us about that transition, what led you there, and what you saw. Well, uh, the short answer is I was chasing a girl, and uh, <laughs> it's funny how that works. Answer, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, L longer answer is uh, yeah, was a teenager uh, getting in trouble, uh, suspended from school, all that business. Was invited to a Wednesday Bible study by uh, my then girlfriend, and I thought this is perfect because I'm 14 years old. I don't get yeah. to go out on weeknights usually because uh, I'm getting in trouble much less to see my girlfriend. And uh, so I thought we'd go to the Bible study, sneak out, um, make out in the field somewhere, and it would just be, you know, an awesome Wednesday night. Well, what happened is I got hooked. I, I was, uh, you know, met by cool young youth leaders with tattoos and who wanted to yeah. know my name and include me in the group. And uh, I got uh, converted. And, and within six months, I, I was uh, an extreme zealot in that youth group. I, I was the guy that uh, stood outside the movie theater and wanted to ask you if you knew our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I was the guy who led Bible studies at his school and uh, all that kind of stuff. And by the time I was 20, just a few years later, I was uh, married. I was a full-time minister and I was attending Azusa Pacific, which is a Christian college. And so 
uh, my teen years were really spent uh, just absolutely enmeshed in uh, a mega church and uh, what ostensibly was also a white Christian nationalist uh, culture. Well, that and then to be so deeply involved in it, I mean, being attracted, to, I don't know if that girl is the one you married, but <laughs> she's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny how they can do that to guys. I, what can I tell you? But uh, uh, how did you? So you were very much involved in that, and how did how did what uh, led you away from that? Uh, yeah, you know they always say in church that if you if you read too much, your brain will lead your heart away from God, and and that's uh-huh. a, you know that's true. Uh, I um, started in college to really read widely in in theology and philosophy and history, and uh-huh. you know by the time I got to seminary uh, at age 22, I was doubting everything I'd been told because I had gotten such a wide view. And I started to question my elders and started to question my professors. And, uh, you know, by the time I was 23, 24, uh, I I was leading prayers in front of 2,000 people, uh, helping, you know, hundreds of kids in our youth group and wasn't sure if I still believed in God. And so, uh, you know, it was a really kind of tough position to be in because, uh, I needed to find a way out. My whole life had been spent in this culture and in this church, and yet intellectually and uh, and in terms of my belief, I, I just wasn't there anymore. So that's why I eventually went over to England for graduate school, and that was kind of my way to depart uh, somewhat gracefully, at least, from the community. Yeah, Oxford University, among other places, is kind of known for its uh, genuine intellectual uh, pursuits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they don't just follow along. Well, Jesus of Nazareth was, of course, about social justice, kindness, and was wary of the effects of great wealth on society. In your evangelical friends denomination church, was that the message you heard preached? It was not. And, you know, uh, one of the things that I try to lay out in the book is that I grew up in Southern California, which I think a lot of people envision as California is this liberal place with uh, liberal politics. And it's 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 much more complex dynamic than that. Where I grew up is really the Bible Belt of Southern California. It's the place where millions of Midwesterners and Southerners migrated to in the mid 20th century. And so uh what happened in that region is is something that's really happened all over the country since then, which is a libertarian, individualist, entrepreneurial Christianity really took root. And when I converted, that that's what I was presented with. And so, you know, when I was 17 or 18 or 19, I, I just thought that was Christianity. If you had talked to me about the social gospel or collective action, if you had talked to me about uh you know, organizing campaigns, I would have thought, what does that have to do with, with converting souls? What does that have to do with saving people from hell? What does that have to do with my individual relationship with God? And so, you know, one of the things I know now as a scholar of religion is that it, we often hear that we're created, you know, p- human beings are created in God's image. I, I think one way to think about it for me academically is that we often create God in our image. And so the question I ask any religious community is, what what kind of projections of the divine are they uh, are they working with, and what does that say mm. about them as a community? And so, for me, looking back, it says to me that the the ideals of my community were were capitalism, individualism, uh, a sense of American nationalism, mm. and not not so explicitly all the time, but certainly a sense of 
whiteness as the prevailing kind of uh, uh, cultural milieu in which we operated. Yeah, interesting. It, there's, you know, the, the the belief in God and the, in the wonder of the creation uh, and religion can be two rather distinct things. They can intersperse, but but the values. I mean, I I can't help but believe I don't know you personally, but that your uh, sense of of, of uh, uh, not just religion but spirituality isn't wasn't given up by leaving that uh, that church and that milieu. Well, you know, one of the things that I I think is true of me is that I, I had a life before uh, my conversion, and so I wasn't somebody who was raised from age you know, to in the church. I, I wasn't somebody who has memories of preschool or, or, uh, or kindergarten at a Christian school or, or going to, to, you know, summer camp when I was eight. So, you know, the reason that I, I converted is because I was really preoccupied even as a teenager with the question of the meaning of life, the uh -huh. big questions. What, what is, what are we doing here? What, what does it mean to be a good person? Uh, why are we on this, this planet? Uh, so on and so forth. And so, you know, even after I deconverted, those questions remained. And that's why I, to this day, am a, a, a scholar of religion. I teach in a theology and religious studies department. Mm -hmm. And I, I continue to be invested in those questions because I think those are the, the, the most valuable to ask, at least at least for me. And so, yeah, I, I have not left the religion game, so to speak, even though I, I am now very critical of, of my former uh, uh, involvement in, in white Christian nationalism and, and as well as evangelicalism. White Christian nationalism, and, and you are the son of a white mother and a Japanese-American father. How did this biracial status impact your experience, for example, at the Rose Drive Friends Church? You know, what I learned early on is that uh, it, it was totally okay for people of color to be present in the church. They just needed to not make being a person of color an issue. Uh, and what I mean by that is uh -huh. that uh, you know, no one was going to say, hey, you're you're Indian American, you're Japanese American, you're Mexican American, you, you're, you can't be here. There, there was no thought of anyone ever saying that. Right. However, if you made it an issue that, hey, you know, did you realize that people of color are marginalized or traditionally uh -huh. uh, in this community, Mexican Americans were actually segregated into different schools or, um, hey, here's the, the holidays we celebrate. Could we could we have my quinceanera celebration at this church or you know, could we talk about how Japanese Americans, um, you know, gather on, on New Year's Day? So that kind of stuff would have been looked at as like, what do you mean? We don't do that here. And please, please don't bring that into this space. And so what I learned is to background my identity and really to make it something that I didn't want visible and I didn't want other people to bring up in conversation. And if they did, I would really try to head it off at the pass. I would make a joke or uh, make a snide comment so that we all could kind of chuckle and then move on because I didn't want the uncomfortable and really unwanted mm. issues of, of race and ethnicity uh, and, and heritage to come up because I knew that they were really not something that the church was interested in discussing. Yeah, interesting. The 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 fact, the reality of, of, of whiteness and, and Frankly, you know, we we hear it more often these days. White supremacy—it's nothing really new. You know, it's been around for a while. And when, yeah. I, I know when I was growing up in the fifties and sixties, they used to talk about the melting pot, which really meant uh, not a mosaic, but p people blending into white culture. 
I mean, let's face it, that really was was it. And I suspect that was fairly present in the uh, uh, religious milieu that uh, that you were in before you deconverted, which is, by the way, a word that I'd never heard before. <laughs> <laughs> I It was. And, you know, w- one example I'll give is, um, you know, we at the church, we had every New Year's Eve, or excuse me, Christmas Eve, we had four or five services and, throughout the day. And historically in my my family my japanese american family the family would gather on christmas eve and and most of the people if not all of them were were buddhist or uh or or surely not christian and so gathering on christmas eve was really just a family uh holiday probably 50 or 60 people uh, amazing food all of the food from uh hawaii where my my family's from and from japan going back further and uh just an amazing gathering and what I remember is having to choose. Am I going to stay at this church on, on Christmas Eve and be part of all the services as a minister here? Or am I going to ask them to let me, you know, have time off so I can drive down to uh, a neighborhood in L.A. that's an ethnic neighborhood. Everyone is Japanese or Asian American and uh, eat some foods that people at the church consider weird and, and just strange and go into a house that smells different because all the foods are different and so on. And that dichotomy between choosing to stay on, on one of the most you know important days of the year at the church, with which was ninety percent white, yeah. or to go to my Japanese American family's gathering, still sticks with me as kind of the best example of having to figure out and ultimately choose between uh, two identities, and, and it's still painful uh, for me to think about now. Oh. Hmm. Interesting. It's it, interesting what can be motivators in this world, especially for young men, uh, sex, food. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and oftentimes, uh, you know, the middle American food, a lot of us can think of as, you know, kind of boring. The more interesting food is the ethnic food, and it adds great diversity and color and fun and a lot better tasting food, just my opinion here. Uh, and yeah. it adds a lot to our culture. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Bradley Onishi, who has a new book out titled Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What, Come ne- what Comes Next. And he knows whereof he speaks because of his background, unique background. Um, and let's look at a little bit of history. The Republican president of the 1950s, Dwight Eisenhower, I would think today would be seen as to the left of most Democrats, at least in terms of <laughs> domestic policy. And then I remember in 1964 when Barry Goldwater was considered right wing. You suggest his campaign, he, he got trounced rather badly. Somehow people thought that uh, Lyndon Johnson was the peace candidate. Ha! Anyway, you suggest <laughs> that his, that Barry Goldwater's campaign marked the birth of the white Christian nationalist counter-revolution, 1964, even though he got creamed. Ronald Reagan was a sign of the success of that transformation in 1980, that shift to the religious right. What, what template did Goldwater's run uh, create that is still used by successful GOP candidates to this day? Well, uh, I, you know, if we do our history, and I, I, I won't go too far into the weeds here, but Dwight Eisenhower often talked about the middle way. And that uh-huh. was that was uh-huh. a, a way to bridge between, you know, Democrat and Republican or left and right. As you mentioned, he was a president of infrastructure. He created the modern highway system and yeah. invested lots and lots of domestic money into 
government projects and government spending. And so by the time he, you know, he had finished his presidency and, and we got into the 1960s and the, the John Kennedy era, there were really a lot of folks on the right who were tired of the middle way and they wanted their way. And they started to feel as if their country was slipping away from them. And so even in the beginning of the 60s, the rumblings of a civil rights movement, the 1963 publication of The Feminine Mystique, uh, you know, soon thereafter, the, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, and also immigration reform. All of that to say that this was all in the ether. And so Barry Goldwater comes out of nowhere, the, the cowboy senator from Arizona, the brusque baritone voice uh, who suggested that maybe we should use nuclear weapons in Vietnam or uh, who would tell folks in the Deep South, yeah, you know, I, I think black folks and white folks should live together, but I'm not going to sign any laws saying that they have to. You all figure that out yourself. Wink, wink. If you don't want to do it, then yep. you don't have to do it. It's up to you. And so he did get trounced. He, he, if you go back and look at that election, he, he only won five states. Uh, however, when he gave his acceptance speech for that nomination, he, he used some words that are still just right. ringing throughout our politics. He said, extremism is a virtue and moderation is not. Meaning, if you want to be part of this Republican Party, extremism was what you need in order to take your country back from all of those trying to get it. And the foot soldiers from that campaign never forgot that lesson. And they went on to found the institutions that now really have a, uh, a strong hold over the modern-day Republican Party, the Heritage Foundation, the Council for National Policy, the Federalist Society, and so on and so on and so on. They took the idea that extremism is a virtue, and they implemented that for the last 60 years. And their goal has been to take back the country from those whose rights and representation were extended in the 1960s, black Americans, people of color, immigrants, women. Uh, we haven't even talked about the queer liberation movements mm -hmm. of the 60s, uh, 1969 and Stonewall, mm -hmm. the LGBT community. So all of those folks who have clawed and fought for rights and representation, this group has said we need to stop that and we need to get back to a place where white Christian landowning men mm -hmm. or patriarchal women have control of the social, economic, and political orders. It's been going on, as you just described, a long time. It sure as heck didn't, uh, the Christian nationalist war on democracy didn't start with, uh, you know, Donald Trump in 2016 or after the November 2020 election. Uh, it's been going on for a long time. And today we see it as, uh, the, the word is culture war. And it's Attract, it, it's got tremendous energy, this culture war. Uh, and, and I it's, it's interesting. I wonder why, why didn't we see it? You, you could see the, I mean, as you describe it, you know, the concern about losing the country, the, 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 the white patriarchal rule, uh, losing the country is something that uh, has motivated a large group of people for a long time. How, how, why do you think we didn't see it? Well, I, I think there's a couple of reasons we didn't see it. One is that, um, you know, in this country, to be a, a white person uh, historically has been to be the standard, the default. Right. Uh, and, and uh, uh, you know, from which every other uh, identity kind of gains its measure. 
uh, or is measured. The other is that uh, there's a tremendous sense, we talk about white privilege today, there's also a tremendous sense of Christian privilege in this country. And what I mean by that is that if you talk about yourself as a person of faith, a a, a God-believing American, a a Bible-believing Christian, then in many parts of the country, that rhetorically already gives you a, a couple of stripes on your on your uh, shoulder or your uh-huh. your sleeve. You're already kind of given a sense of legitimacy or authority. It's a way to say I'm trustworthy. I believe in God. I believe in the Bible. You can vote for me. You can you can put your faith in me as a leader. And you know one of the things I talk about uh, in the book is you know when I was growing up, The Simpsons was a, a popular show, and there was a, a a, a character on The Simpsons called Ned Flanders, and oh, yes. Ned Flanders was this irritating moralist, you know, neighbor to The Simpsons, and he would always tell Homer Simpson, "Hey, stop drinking so much beer and stop using bad language, and hey, why don't you come to church with me?" And he was he was annoying, uh, and but he wasn't scary. He wasn't frightening. He was just that guy that when he was around, you felt like you you couldn't use swear words, and you know, you were getting kind of dirty looks for having one too many at the barbecue. There was another character in The Simpsons, Mr. Burns, and Mr. Burns was the kind of authoritarian figure over the town, the guy that wanted all the power. He was cruel. He was cunning. And he was really didn't care if he needed to uh, make others suffer so he could, you know, kind of stay in charge. My argument is that white Christians in this country have been viewed as Ned Flanders for a long, long time. And therefore, when they have done things, whether it's in the 70s or 80s or 90s or the new millennium, that are frightening and hurtful and violent, it's often been overlooked. It's often been whisked away. And what we should do is start to see at least some of them uh, it, in various iterations more akin to Mr. Burns, people who are authoritarian, uh, at least communities and movements that are authoritarian, those that will use force and violence in order to stay in charge, those that really don't care if certain people suffer as long as they maintain power. But one of the reasons we haven't seen it coming, Bert, is because of Christian privilege and the willingness to give uh, white Christians a pass, even when they have suggested or invested in or actually executed uh, things that are incredibly hurtful to our democracy. And it is, it's been interesting for really a long time how you know working people, uh, people who you know, Democrats used to be able to uh, say that they were uh, traditional, uh, strong, reliable advocates for uh, have been uh, working perhaps unintentionally for Mr. Burns and uh, the the gospel of the Simpsons. (laughs) That's what we're talking about here. But uh, no, not the gospel, but uh, anyway, the the reality of it. But Reagan made us aware of the term new right. I remember that well. On the heels of the new left of the late 60s. Uh, but though born of a similar era, how are the new right and the religious right distinct? And w- why did they become allied? And uh, what, what about the, uh, the, the change there, the transformation there? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, what I would say is that in the, in the the 1970s, you had this idea of a new right already bubbling up. Right. And the idea was, as I, as I said just a couple minutes ago, we are extremists. We are uh, revolutionaries. We are radicals. These are all the words of Paul Weyrich and, and other leaders of this movement. And we are going to revolutionize the country. And they were really Mr. Burns. Okay, So they were really thinking 
we need a political takeover of this country right. by any means possible. Mm -hmm. What they realized, though, is if they wanted that working person that you just mentioned, if they wanted that blue collar uh, uh, family, that uh, right. that guy who used to be part of the union to come to their side, mm -hmm. then partnering with the religious right would make all of the, the political issues, issues of morality and issues of identity. You know, what they were able to do is to say, look, uh, you should vote not based on self-interest when it comes to economics, but about all these culture war issues, you know, these identity issues, these issues of morality. And we're going to stage those issues in ways that are incredibly reductive. So let's take abortion. They right. realized that if they made abortion into a simply right or wrong issue, not one that had nuance and complexity, not one that involved science and fetal development and and productive rights and bodily autonomy, but simply, do you support murder or not? Then they could really recruit millions of voters to their side, and they were successful. Uh, if we go back to the 60s, something like 90% of Texas Baptists support abortion in some form. And in the course of the 1970s, the new right, i.e. the Mr. Burns is in this story, and the religious right, the ministers who really wanted power and influence, convinced uh, evangelical Christians and, and many others that abortion is murder. And if you vote for us, you vote to save babies. Does that sound good to you? Forget the union. Forget your economic interests. Forget the fact that we're stripping your communities of needed funding for schools and infrastructure. Forget the fact that we're, we're, we're have tax hikes for you and tax breaks for the rich. Do you want to support murder or not? And it was a very convincing strategy. Yeah, it was. People, I mean, who's for killing babies? You know, I mean, exactly. think about that. It's like, it's it's one thing that uh, it, it really connects with, with a lot of people there. Um, and m many Americans, I suppose myself included, were naive enough to think that the election of our first black president signaled a real blow against racism. Talk about what 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 you've seen, what you've recognized as the power of the backlash against that, along with the the civil rights uh, achievements of the '60s, or maybe just in the context of those achievements, that remain vital to understanding our current political and cultural landscape. You know, if we if we think about the '60s, as I as I mentioned just a, a minute ago, and, and the civil rights movement, the Voting Rights Act, the right the sweeping immigration reform, the women's rights movement, all of those all of those changes in American culture and politics. And then if we think about that leading up to, in some sense, and there's 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 not necessarily straight lines here, but for the sake of time, in 2008, we have a, a, a man who is mixed race, who is black, who has a, an immigrant father, who uh, his middle name is Hussein, whose wife is black, whose children are black. Uh, who is named Barack, he is elected president. And all of a sudden, for the white Christian nationalists, all of the fears that were birthed in the 60s of losing their country, they seem to have come true. And not only that, but in the course of his presidency, gay marriage is legalized. And uh, you know, so many other reforms are made. And all of a sudden, in their mind, it's, it really is time for extremism. I mean, it really is time to act decisively. Otherwise, we will lose our country. One of the hallmarks of white Christian nationalism is a sense of the apocalypse. If we don't act quickly, it will all end soon. And so we don't need Mike Huckabee. 
we don't need Marco Rubio. We need the barbarian, brutal warrior who will destroy our enemies. Yeah, he may not be a Christian. Yeah, he may not have any moral virtue, but he's going to hurt the people we need him to hurt. He's going to marginalize and oppress the people we need him to so that we can get power again. And so, Donald Trump, you're our guy. Let's do it. Wow, interesting. It's interesting how some of the best organizers can turn out to be from the other side. And again, I mean, would there be this backlash against black people and losing white power, if not for the election of Barack Obama? One, it's it's interesting. I used to say it's part of the old anti-war movement that the best organizer of the anti-war movement was was Nixon himself. Yeah, uh, it's funny how not funny. It's interesting how uh, history works that way. Um, and many have heard of the the Great Migration, the movement mm-hmm. of some six million Black Southerners to the urban North. A lot's been written about that. It's an amazing uh, cultural historical uh, uh, reality. Uh, they moved to the Chicago area. A lot of them between 1917 and 1975. <laughs> Far fewer have heard of another migration of Americans that you suggest has had an equally profound effect on our country, the Sunbelt migration. And I wonder, you know, I I look at places like Idaho, Montana, Wyoming. Talk about this this migration, please. Yeah, so let me me talk about the Sunbelt migration quickly. So in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, you have millions move from the Midwest and the South to uh, places like Los Angeles and Phoenix and eventually Orange County, California. Why? Because especially in California, you have the the centers of the the defense industry. So this is the high time of the Cold War era. People are moving to to good jobs, to good weather and uh, cheap land at the time. It totally reshaped our country's demographics. California is now the most populous state in the country. And uh, it really gave birth to uh, the modern conservative movement in the way that we think of it now. We've already talked about Barry Goldwater. Well, Barry Goldwater would not have been the GOP nominee without the uh, without the fact that he won California. And, and that all happened because of the conservative Christians in Southern California. Uh, you mentioned Richard Nixon. Well, guess what? I was born in Richard Nixon's town, and I went to Richard Nixon's church. Huh. Uh, he he comes from where I come from. The politics and the the church I was I was converted into are the ones that he grew up with. Um, Ronald Reagan was just birthed as a political candidate in Southern California. Not to mention uh, other luminaries in culture, such as John Wayne. Uh, Orange County Airport is called John Wayne Airport and Pat Boone. So the reason I bring all that up is because it's it's easy to overlook the ways that that part of the country has really given rise to a lot of the conservatism that we see at play in our politics. Now, what has happened since then is really fascinating. Orange County and, and of course, many parts of L.A. County are just overwhelmingly diverse now. Uh, Orange County in particular is gone from a white suburban enclave to a purple, uh, very racially diverse place. It Mm. it had a blue wave in uh, the 2018 midterms and is really now a slightly uh, Democrat kind of region. Well, what has that led to? Has that led to converted hearts and minds of all those former white, uh, you know, conservative Christian nationalists? Has that really just led to a come to Jesus moment and realize that it's time to 
see the writing on the wall and the diversification and and plurality of our country? Nope, it's led to an exodus. So many people are now moving to the places you mentioned, Idaho, Montana. Uh, if if I went up to, to Idaho right now, I could probably find 100 people that I, I went to school with or church with who have moved from Orange County to Idaho because they say it's cheaper and there's more land, just like their grandparents said when they got to Orange County uh, three generations ago. But I will point out that Idaho is a 93% white state. It is a place where there is a stunning lack of racial or religious diversity. So what they're doing is moving to a safe space. They're moving to a place where everyone is like them mm. and building uh, in, in what they, in their minds, is the right kind of, of Christian society. So these migration patterns can really tell us something, I think, about uh, where we've been and, and where we might be headed. Boy, a lot's been written about uh, are we really one nation, one country for sure, but perhaps, uh, I mean, many years ago, uh, Colin Woodard wrote a book about American nations, the 11 nations of North America, and uh, boy, we do seem to be uh, dividing up, and uh, it's a very, very large geographical country, and to uh, to separate out into that, oof. And it goes in with the uh, title of your book. Our guest today on Keeping Democracy Alive, Bradley Onishi, his new book is Preparing for War, the Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. And of course, we're all a little bit scared to talk about what comes next. But I got to ask you your motivation for, for writing this book. How did it come to be written? It's a, you know, it's a big deal to write a book and to go through, jump through all those hoops to get it published and everything. <laughs> well, I, I think there's two two reasons. One is um, I, I really feel like, uh, as you said, it's frightening to talk about these things, but it, it's really important. And uh, if we're not willing to kind of face up to where we are, then I don't think we'll ever mm. figure a way forward that is uh, is one in which democracy is thriving and just not under existential threat from all angles as it as it feels like it is now. So I, uh, I wanted to, to write a book that thoroughly examined this history in order to sort of give folks a, a bird's eye view of where we've been and, and kind of what we're in. I, I have a friend who says that, you know, when you're in war, the best position to be in is when your enemy doesn't know you are. And I, I think there's a lot of Americans who just don't realize how long the organizing efforts have been to really uh, take back America for a small faction of white Christians. Mm. Uh you know, there there is a chapter in the book where I, I basically argue that they started looking to um, leaders such as Vladimir Putin uh, 20 years ago as models of governance. It, nowadays, they, they look to Putin, but they also look to people like Orban. Mm -hmm. They look to countries such as uh, Poland and, uh, and, and, and Turkey in some regard as places where democracy has been used against itself in order to institute a very strict uh, 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 mode of governance and, in essence, uh, an authoritarian government. <clears throat> and so I wanted people to know that. I also, as you said earlier, I'm a former insider, and I felt like perhaps my perspective would give a little more texture and a little more lived reality than a simple journalistic account. I have so many friends and colleagues who are journalists and they've written great books on this subject, and, and I've read them and learned from them, and I, I think everyone else should too. I think what I bring to the table is I've lived it. I was a minister. I was inside this movement. I gave my life to it. And so I can really kind of uh, paint a picture of what it's like to be seduced into this way of thinking. 
And one more final aspect is really the fact that there's a lot of people trying to find their way out of these kinds of communities. They're, they're trying to, to, to make sense of how to be a human being after leaving what was their only uh, sense of the world and of themselves in these high demand religions. And a lot of them have no tools with which to process that. They don't understand how their church became enamored with Donald Trump. They don't understand how their church became a bastion for the politics of building a wall or a Muslim ban or uh, anti-COVID protests. And, and they're leaving those places, but they don't have any way to understand what happened to get them there. And so my hope is that this book, from somebody who also lived it, would give people a chance uh, to really kind of process and work through what is it is not an easy thing. You know, I, I haven't talked about this really much today, but it's really hard to leave these communities. You know, w- uh. when I was 24 years old, Bert, I, I, I didn't know anything else. I, I had my entire career was in ministry. I didn't have any other career plans. My entire social life was at the church. I didn't have any friends outside of it. My entire romantic life, I had met my, my wife there and we, you know, we were married and our whole uh, kind of married life had been enmeshed in the church. My uh, economic uh, understanding of things, my political understanding of things. So when I left that, I had to rebuild every fiber, every strand of who I was. And uh, it wasn't easy. And so, uh, you know, there's a lot of people going through that now. And uh, my hope is that maybe the book will give them a, a, at least one tool with which to kind of uh, forge through that uh, that difficult work. Yeah, for sure. If people have a, a set structure, something that's comfortable, that uh, d- defines their world, boy, it's hard to uh, to even take a look at it. Never mind the idea of actually getting out of it. Oof, boy, that that's a yeah. that's a tough one for sure. People get real familiar with that, and you know, it's 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 upsetting. It's a uh, destabilizing, when, and, and people like stability. And that's right. To talk about stability, millions of Americans have have really been puzzled by the adoration uh, by other millions of us for Donald Trump. Millions of people adore him. He's like a a prince, a Christian prince or something like that. What, What is it? What explains this near worship of someone who is so blatantly not a practitioner of Jesus' teachings but whose appeal is intrinsic to Christian nationalists. I, I know that it, you're exactly right that it, on the surface it's incredibly confusing, but I think there's some ways that can really help us make sense of this. Uh, I think, number one, there used to be uh, an understanding that you had to talk in code. Uh, after mm. the 1960s, uh, obviously the kinds of slurs and the kinds of derogatory language that were used for uh, people of color, marginalized folks, uh, changed. And politicians started to use words like uh, and phrases like welfare queen rather than right. uh, so- something else. Donald Trump came along, and, and I'll tell you, he stopped using the code. And he just said, I- I'm not going to speak in code anymore. I'm going to say it out loud. I'm going to say it proud. And I'm going to double down every time you criticize me. And uh, we'll see what happens. And it only strengthened him because so many people had been tired, uh-huh. unfortunately, of the code and just wanted to come out and say what was on their mind. So I think that's one. But I think there's a deeper issue that that actually is more helpful to understanding this, and it's something I alluded to earlier. Uh, Donald Trump, by no measure, is a, uh, a Christian person. Now, we could argue about that. Uh, I'm sure I'll get folks who email me and say, well, you know, how do you measure that, and so on, and that's fine. 
But if we compare him to George W. Bush, who talked about reading the Bible, or if we compare him to Jimmy Carter, or or even uh, you know Mike Huckabee, none you know Bush and Huckabee are not people I admire, but there's a track record of of their kind of piety in public in, in some form. Trump doesn't have that, but you know what Trump has? Trump has the willingness to punish all the people who the white Christians see as their enemies. And so hmm. for many of them, his election was not about electing someone like us, electing someone who represents us in terms of our religious practice, in terms of our religious identity. The election of Donald Trump was about, you know, I think Mike Pence and Ted Cruz and Mike Huckabee, they're too Christian to get the job done. Because you know what the job is? The job is destroying and excluding and oppressing all those people who think they have a right to this country, but who really don't. Hmm. All of those immigrants, all of those newcomers, all of those gay folks and bisexual folks and transgender folks, all of those mixed race folks and those independent women who want bodily autonomy. It's high time that we stopped trying to vote them out or vote them away. It's high time that we stop trying to use democracy to kind of get our way. You know what it's time for? It's time for any tactic we need. If we have to martyr democracy to save our nation, then we will do it. That's the mindset. So Donald Trump is a barbarian. He's brutal compared to Mike Pence or compared to Mike Huckabee. And so he's their guy. He's the guy that will just put in a Muslim ban weeks after getting into office. He's the guy that will build a wall. He's the guy that will say there were fine people on both sides after Charlottesville. And so his power only grew the more he said the quiet part out loud and the more he brutalized the the enemies of the white Christian nationalists. Uh, I have a a colleague, Sam Perry, who always says they wanted the the bully that would come to the, the playground with them and beat up all the other kids because they were they were afraid ah. and they were scared and that's what they got and and at least they think they got in Donald Trump. Interesting point. Wow, interesting point. The bully to beat up the other guys and to protect them. Wow, it, it seems so so obvious now that you said it, but I had I, it hadn't occurred to me before, and uh, a lot of your perspectives are uh, unique because you you've been in it, you've seen what it is. And uh, people like simplistic things, let's face it, you know, just simplistic (laughs) answers. They do. Myth is so much more reassuring than real history, which can be disturbing to the dominant beliefs. Lord knows, and we're talking about this when it comes to uh, what books can be used in schools. The Republican obsession with the cowboy, Ronald Reagan up on his horse, uh, has morphed into an embrace of the autocrat. And uh, yeah. t- talk more about how that happened, how it's been explained, used, and, and justified. I know you just well, do a lot of that, but go ahead. Yeah, no, I think it I think it dovetails on what we just talked about. And so let's let's go back into our history again. And this is kind of what I do in the book in a, a much expanded form. You know, Barry Goldwater is uh, the Arizona senator. He's a cowboy. Right. He's brusque. Not really interested in policy as much as he is just getting getting out there on the campaign trail, and and just making very uh, simple and full frontal statements about uh, what needs to happen in the country to get it back on track. Okay. And that means uh, using nuclear weapons and, and so on and so forth. All right. Sure. He, uh, his sister said that uh, at one point that Barry Goldwater never read a book cover to cover. And he, he gave you this image of the working man uh, cowboy 
uh, even though he was born into to immense privilege in, in Phoenix. Mm. So you can start to see there elements of what would become the Donald Trump profile. All right. Let's go to let's go to Ronald Reagan. In 1976, we have the election of J- Jimmy Carter. He is the prototype white Christian. He's a farmer. Yes. Rural Georgia. He uh, grew up Southern Baptist. He married his high school sweetheart. He was a military officer. And what happens in 1980? The moral majority, the white Christians and the new right, they do everything they can to get rid of him. In favor of whom? In favor of the divorced Hollywood actor who had once been pretty favorable to abortion in California and uh, did not have a great relationship with his older children, i.e. his family values weren't uh, totally in line with theirs. But you know what? They wanted power, not piety. So they got rid of Jimmy Carter for the Hollywood TV man, divorced, rich. I mean, Nancy Reagan had an astrologist follow her around in the White House at one point. There's no way that Nancy Reagan was the evangelical Christian that, uh, you know, that one might imagine. Well, we start to see more of this profile, don't we? We start to see the the the, the Hollywood on camera persona guy come into uh, into into view. So we've got Goldwater and Reagan, and then we go to the '90s, and you know who we get there, and and this is a little different. We get the the voices of Rush Limbaugh and other far right shock jocks who really radicalize a generation of young men in that era. They provide this misogynist, toxic, hardcore, right-wing discourse that really becomes what we see later on in the Obama years as just a vitriolic attack on, uh, on Obama and on others. If you put all those together, Goldwater, Reagan, Limbaugh, you get something that looks like Donald Trump. And so the, the autocratic, despotic impulses of the Trump administration – are not things that were sui generis. They didn't come out of nowhere. They weren't born in 2016. They had been bubbling and building and developing since the 60s. And uh, unfortunately, they came to fruition uh, in in the form of our 45th president. Ooh, fascinating. A little more than a little bit scary, but uh, it's, it's interesting to understand how this stuff really happened, where it came from. If you just tuned in, dear listener, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about a threat to democracy. Our guest today is, is uh, author Bradley Onishi. He's got a new book out, Preparing for War. And they have been. The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and what comes next. And I'll say one thing about uh, the right. It tends to be a lot better organized uh, than the left, I, I will say. And when, uh, re- when Will Rogers so many years ago said, I'm not a member of any organized party, I'm a Democrat. Uh, it, <laughs> <laughs> the, rep- the, the, the organization, this war, the, the extremist history that's been going on for a long time, it's been getting organized. And they've yeah. had their focuses, and it, it's done remarkably well. Um, and, and, and and you talk about white male domination. I, I found it fascinating in the 2020 election how many angry young white men were just bubbling over with the, you know zeal for, for Donald Trump. Um, they, they wanted their... To, to be dominant. And it seems like there's this, well, fear of, of, yeah. of, of that their masculinity isn't good enough. Uh, there's this group, you've probably heard of incels, involuntary mm-hmm. celibacy. It's kind of nuts, in my opinion, but, you know, blaming others. And, and this, 
what many people would call toxic masculinity here. But I, I wonder about that power and and the toxicity of QAnon and, mm. and things yep. like that. How has QAnon gained traction with these Christian nationalists? Talk about that uh, confluence, if you would, please. Sure. Uh, I, I think you're, you're right on with the, 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 the comment about patriarchy. And uh, that's been bubbling for a long time. And I, I just will say briefly that uh, that sense of masculinity is uh, – prevailing in white Christian nationalist circles. I, I wrote an article at one point uh, in a magazine called God is ultimate masculinity. And there's this sense mm. in these culture, uh, these communities that God is the ultimate masculine and you have to try to live wow. up to him. Mm. And um, Jesus is this overwhelmingly muscular AR 15 holding uh, <laughs> alpha male. And um, it, it really does create a sense of ina inadequacy and also a, a bad model for manhood. Uh, in, in these communities. And so I, I could talk about that all day, but I'll just say briefly, I think that's right. You know, when it comes to QAnon, I, once again, if we just talked about a history from Goldwater to Reagan to Limbaugh to, to Trump, uh, QAnon to me is really the, the, the grand uh, child of, of several other conspiracy movements. Once again, it's, it's not something that comes out of nowhere. So back in the 60s, when we, we've been talking about Goldwater and that whole thing, you had the advent of the John Birch Society. Yes. And the John Birch Society was a right-wing anti-communist organization. And they organized, talking about organization, small home groups, or what we would call cells, mm -hmm. uh, all over the place, where they would meet and, and provide information and pamphlets, and uh, they would discuss issues. Now, some of those discussions were about fighting communism or the benefits of capitalism. A lot of those discussions were conspiratorial. They would talk about how Dwight Eisenhower was a communist agent from mm -hmm. the, the Soviet Union or 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 Warren, the Supreme Court justice, or lo and behold, Martin Luther King Jr. They would also talk about how elementary school teachers were teaching health to, to little kids by taking their clothes off in, in, in uh, classrooms and showing them the human anatomy by way of their own naked body. You know, so when you hear about the grooming rhetoric and the uh, the attack on teachers today, well, that's not new. That that's all been around a long time. In Reagan's eighties, we had the satanic panic. We had this idea yeah. that there were just uh, satanic forces at play all over the place, and right. pop culture and music. So there was this idea that the the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and everybody was instilling in American culture uh, a sense of satanic possession, and and there were actually congressional investigations yeah. into into this. Uh, some of you might, some of the listeners might be familiar with the Memphis, uh, the Memphis three and the whole West Memphis, uh, kind of witch hunt that happened. All of that to say there was grand conspiracies in the eighties that there were people who were not Christian, who were coming for your children, that they were going to expose your children to demonic forces. And if you weren't careful about what daycare you, you chose or what cassette tape you gave your kids or, uh, or what TV shows that they would be, uh, you know, in, in danger of being uh, possessed by Satan. Well, we get to QAnon, and it's really a grandchild of all of these. And mm. uh, QAnon, I know it, it seems ludicrous to many people. The way I look at, at something like QAnon and other conspiracies is that it's, it's the desire to determine what is real and actual and true in the public square. That you want to go into public and say, that all of you think of us as crazy or as marginal, but you know what? We know the truth. We know what's real. 
And we're going to make sure that that is recognized as uh, actual and as standard. And so we're not going to back down. And you know what? We also think that this country is so far off course that there's no other explanation that except for some grand cosmic level conspiracy. And, and so QAnon, yeah, this makes sense to us. We want as white Christian, I mean, QAnon is, is, is very, uh, the, the numbers show us that it is very attuned uh, with white evangelicals. We as white evangelicals used to have the sole privilege of determining what was true and real in public life. And we've lost it. So we're going to show up now and we're going to instill that we're going to, Im- uh, uh, impose it and we'll use violence if we need to, to make sure that you know that what we think is the truth, what we think is real. And if you don't like it, that's too bad. And also it's a great story to explain just what's happened to the country. No, this is not about democracy. This is not about people voting and wanting rights as immigrants and as women and as, as, as members of the LGBT community. No, no. This is about a cabal of child grooming, child eating demons. That's the easiest route to to getting where we need to go. You're not just my political uh, neighbor who disagrees with me. You're a serpent sent from uh, the, the, the fire of Hades meant to destroy me, my family and my country. That's a much more gratifying picture of one's political opponent rather than just, well, there's more of them than there are of us. They don't agree. So we have to accept the results and we'll have to go on our way. You know, white evangelicals, white Christians in general, they're just not used to that happening in this country, are they? And so when it does, it's a lot easier to go to the conspiracy explanation rather than the stark reality of a changing country with changing politics. And it is so much about about fear. So much about fear. Yes. No question. And, and fear has been, I mean, and and for them to to say, and I believe it was Joseph Goebbels who told his boss, "Say of the other what is true about yourself," and that uh, stealing the election. They were claiming that the the Democrats were trying to steal the election when it was they who were trying to steal the election. But just say that over and yep. over and over again. And the title of the book, again, our guest is Bradley Onishi. His new book is Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. Now we're going to look at a little bit of perhaps what comes next. I mean, history is always unpredictable. And the former guy says, the orange one, whatever, says a lot of surprising things. He recently shocked a lot of people with his call to reject the Constitution to restore him to power, it 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 seemed it seemed like it was just off the cuff silliness nonsense from from Trump. Is there evidence of precedent behind that wish within the far right actually eliminating the Constitution? And and you warned that the question is you know not if there'll be another attack on our democracy, but when. And the defeat of Trump as candidates in the recent midterm, uh, is there, what do you think uh, lies ahead? I mean, of course, it, you don't have a crystal ball, but but you've looked into this quite a bit more in, in a unique way. Your thoughts on that? So I think that there's uh, a couple dimensions here. I think one is that, um, you know, when Trump calls for the, the uh, suspension of the Constitution, it is shocking. And it should have led to outrage 
from every politician in the country, Republican, Democrat, independent, doesn't matter. And it, it didn't. And that should tell us something about uh, where we are. But, you know, I, I lay out in one chapter just all of the ways that uh, uh, the American right has, again, looked to non-democratic leaders as their model. Because what, what is happening is they're saying to themselves, we don't have the votes, we don't have the numbers. So if we want to have power, if we want our way, then we're going to have to do it uh, without the, the, the ballot box. And so Putin, Orban, these are great models for mm-hmm. us. And, and I show in the book just the deep ties to Russia and Hungary that uh, Christian uh, wh- white American Christians have developed over the last two, three decades. And so uh, I'll just I'll just leave that there and say when Trump calls for the suspension of the Constitution, uh, I argue in the book that if they have to get rid of democracy in order to save the country that they want, they will do that. And and that uh, there are there is clear evidence of that going back uh, numerous decades. Um what comes next? You know, I, I do think that a lot of people are breathing a sigh of relief in the wake of the 2020 midterms, and in many ways, rightfully so. Uh, many of the secretary of state candidates who right. were election deniers were not elected. Uh, many Trumpian or Trump endorsed candidates lost. Uh, you know, the Kerry Lakes and the Doug Mastrianos did not win, despite what they claim. And so there, there is good news here. And I, by all accounts, the the uh, the worst case scenarios did not happen. I. I the thing that I would say is that as somebody who lived this and who studied uh, the last uh, 60 to 75 years of these movements, uh, a, a setback in a midterm cycle is not going to deter them. Um, you know, there's, the, mm. the power brokers at play here are not sitting around going, well, guys, uh, just didn't win as many, you know, state legislature and congressional seats as we thought. So we gave it our best shot. You know, maybe we should get a new hobby, uh, take up golf. Uh, here, pickleball's big now. Let's do that. Uh, nobody's doing that. You know what they're doing? They're regrouping. They're starting to put in uh, Plan B, Plan C, Plan D. Uh, they're getting ready for 2024. And, you know, if Trump is not a viable candidate, and I don't know if he is or not, uh, Ron DeSantis oh, is. Yeah. And Ron DeSantis is giving us a vision uh, of what Trumpism without Trump might look like, uh, a very Trumpian uh, uh, politician who's much more adept at governance than Trump. Trump was never good at actually getting anything through policy-wise. DeSantis is much more uh, uh, adept at using the levers of government to get his way. And the way I would put it is using the levers of democracy to to subvert democracy. And so uh, someone like DeSantis is really, to me, the one that I'm keeping an eye on as the potential to be the the the, the Trumpist without Trump, yeah. who is the next iteration of, of American uh, Republican uh, politics. We shall see. We shall see. And as they say, forewarned is forearmed. And uh, the book is titled... Preparing for War, the Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. Our guest on Keeping Democracy Alive has been its author, Bradley Onishi. Fascinating stuff. we got to learn this stuff. We have to face it. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thank you.